I'm Amanda Monaco, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor Amanda Monaco. Amanda is a renowned jazz guitarist based in New York who's played at Lincoln Center, the Jazz Standard, Birdland, and the Kennedy Center, and whose playing has been featured in Downbeat, Jazz Times, the New York City Jazz Record, and the New York Times. She's released eight full-length albums and performs in a number of bands, Death Blow, Glitter, and recently the Perquet Evot Project, which sets to music verses from ancient rabbinical writings from the third century. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Amanda Monaco. Hi everyone, I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, um, we have our assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey, here today. Hey, Cheryl. And we have the assistant to the assistant chair, which is Joni. Joni the cat. I noticed that right away. I noticed that Joni was, if you're watching this, she was looking right into the camera like she knows that this is the beginning of Coffee Talk. So Mm -hmm. thank you, Joni. She's into it. Welcome, Joni. Um, We have Ian Steed, our coordinator, senior coordinator of the department. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. How's it going? Good. And today our special guest is Amanda Monaco, professor of guitar and um, and uh, jazz teacher at Berkeley College of Music. Hey, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> Good to this see you. This is my assistant Euclid who cannot be bothered with Euclid, cannabis. also a cat. Also a cat if you're listening. Princess Euclid so. was very popular in Berkeley uh, remote classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she made quite an appearance. We've heard. Yep. That's student great. actually um, so, sent me a picture of her walking across this, the camera when I was trying to demonstrate something. <laughs> that's fantastic. Somehow they know that exact time and they make their presence known I, somehow. I know. That's true. So Amanda, everybody wants to know, do you drink coffee and how do you take it? Have my Berkeley mug. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm drinking an Italian roast mm-hmm. from Fairway, which is a grocery store I've been shopping at in New York City since I moved here um, mm-hmm. in 1995. Um, I kind of prefer the dark roast coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's really hot outside, I'll drink cold brew, ice cold brew. But today is just uh, today is a, a simple Italian roast with whole milk. And I know often when we get together for coffee and you make it, you use the French press. Did you do that today? Is that what you do at home as well? No, I have a pour over. I have like a one cup pour over. Um, yeah. My husband hates coffee. So when I suggested I get a coffee maker, he said to me, is it going to smell like stale coffee in the kitchen like it did when I worked in an office? And I said, uh, I won't get it. Okay. So that's so, yeah, good, though. You, have you developed a technique for the pour over, like how much coffee and how, like the, do you have a pacing for the pouring part of the pour over? A little bit, because there's, um, 
there's actually um, a coffee shop in my building mm-hmm. um, on the ground floor that only does pour over coffee. And they have these machines that, you know, they, they have these machines where they put the cup underneath and then it, it distributes the water evenly and then it waits and then it distributes a little more and it waits. And that's the only kind of coffee you can get there. You can't get just, you can't just go and say I'd like a cup of coffee and they like pour it and they're like, here you go. It's, it's always like that. So I took some tips from them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Cool. And I, I grind the beans at home to do that. Nice. Um, I'm so tempted to do what you do, Cheryl, with uh, roasting my own beans, but I'm afraid I'd like, I'd like the kitchen on fire. You you might the first couple times till you get the hang of it, but then you get the hang of it and it's okay. <laughs> it's all, only a couple of kitchen fires though, right? Just yeah, a couple. Just a brief little learning curve. Yeah. If you want to make an omelet, you got to set the kitchen on fire. That's right. It's like you know, it's like anything. I mean, we we often relate the coffee discussion to um, to practicing, and there's a lot of technique here involved in Amanda's approach and. And uh, you have to be able to take some risks <laughs> to try new things. So, I mean, it, it, honestly, it would make taking like a stylistic or practice risk feel less risky if you just risk setting your kitchen on fire. Not I that can't you've been on that. fire before, though. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. <laughs> right. Bad experience. So, okay. Now, before we go into that past experience, tell us about the experience of your first days at Berkeley? Well, my first day at Berkeley, I was teaching guitar sessions. So I almost remember that more than joining the faculty. So that was 2004. Um, in 2000, 2001, I attended the Banff Center for the Arts, which is this amazing um, artist's paradise and near Calgary. And I did this three week jazz workshop. There weren't practice rooms. There were practice huts in the woods. Um, it was, it was, you know, up in the mountains. It was gorgeous up the Canadian Rockies. Um, and Rick Peckham was my guitar teacher. So I told him that, um, I had been teaching since 1994 at uh, the national guitar workshop, which many of us, uh, know I, Kim, you and I, we can talk about that. We'll talk about that later. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so we kept in touch. And then I, I think a year or two later, like 2003 maybe or 2004, I bumped into him at the International Association of Jazz Educators, IAJE conference. And I said, yeah, if you ever need me for guitar sessions, just, just let me know. And, and then I got the call. And, and I remember, you know, going up there the first day and um, not knowing where to put my car overnight was really special because Boston's parking situation is very different than New York. Um, and I actually, the first person I remember meeting is Thaddeus. Thaddeus Hogarth. It was like the, I think he was like the first faculty member I met. And he was really sweet and really helpful. And I was really amazed at how smoothly everything ran. Um, and uh, photocopying was easy, which um, in my past years of teaching, photocopying was not easy, um, which may seem like a small thing, but it was kind of a big thing because I was teaching fretboard harmony. So 
I have a lot of worksheets for that, right? And when there's no photocopy machine, it's kind of a disaster. So, um, but I just remember being really excited because even though I didn't go to Berkeley, I always wanted to teach at Berkeley. I don't know where that came from or how that happened, but I made it, made, I had this thought in my head that, yeah, you know, I'm going to move to New York. And then, and then I think actually, I think I said to myself, yeah, and then I can just go up a couple days a week like Cheryl does. That, that's great. And I wonder, you know, I think we all have these dreams, right? And you have this idea of what your life is going to be like. And I wonder, like, after having actually taught at Berkeley for a while, do you remember, like, what parts of what you thought it would be like were true? And what parts of what you thought it would be like are different? And different could be better. Different could just be different. Like, do you remember what you thought it would be like? And, and can you like just share a little bit of, you know, what you were correct about th in your thinking and what you weren't? I think people, because I think a lot of our listeners have those ideas right now about their life. You know, I'm going to move to New York or I'm going to be a faculty member back here at Berkeley with everybody. Um, what, what rang true to you and what did you discover was different? Hmm. Well, in some ways, first of all, it was just different because of the facilities in general, you know, because a ton of my teaching up till then had been um, traveling to apartments in New York City and giving guitar lessons that way or teaching at the National Guitar Workshop, which was on the campus of a uh, charming yet slightly dilapidated uh, boarding school campus. Um, so I think, I think that, I think that coming to Berkeley, I really just was super impressed by the whole thing. And it felt, wait, you're muted. But um, I don't really feel like there was anything I think it kind of exceeded my expectations, in fact. Right. I guess that's what my question was. Like, I knew it would be different than maybe other experiences you had, but did you have like an impression of what you thought it would be like to teach at Berkeley? And what about that impression held as true? And what about it was, did you find was different in certain ways? And that's the question I, I mean, we could talk forever about all these great experiences you had in different ways, but I really want to know, like, you had a, an idea of what it would be like to be at Berkeley, and then you came. So what what matched your idea and in the reality and what was different? Well, I expected students to be really eager to learn, and I expected students to be really passionate about it and really committed to it. And I expected the faculty to be the same, and it pretty much just held true. I mean, um, if anything, it was... Um, it was super inspiring in more ways than I could have imagined because everybody was so committed to what they were doing. Um, they were, and the styles were so varied, you know, everybody doing their own thing and learning. And then the curriculum of Berkeley, you know, just, just the, the Bill Levitt stuff and, you know, the comprehensive 
comprehensive understanding of the fretboard and knowing how to navigate everything and how everybody was really totally into that. And I've always been kind of a nerd. And so knowing that I could geek out with students and faculty that were equally as nerdy um, was really, really great. It's like, ah, my people, yay. You know, and so it was actually just a really positive experience overall. It inspired me to work harder, you know, to really examine what I was doing. I think that's really interesting. And I think like what you mentioned coming from teaching motivated students privately and coming from teaching at the National Guitar Workshop, which was it was the longest running for people who are listening who don't know. It was the longest running summer workshop. Um, that was private, not connected to a college like Berkeley summer programs is. And, um, people generally would come there as Amanda and I did when you're young students to study, to get ready to go to college or as college students, just to kind of keep just re honing your skills as you go. And, um, I'm wondering, Amanda, like having come from that background where you've experienced really helping serious students along the way as a mentor. Then when you came and you taught at Berkeley and you're teaching at the college level, did it change your approach in terms of like, were there things you learned from teaching college students about helping people get to college? Like, did you notice like, oh, these are the things I really think you should know. And here are some common gaps that people tend to have that they overlook um, before they come to school. So kind of almost like, take the question as speaking to people who are coming to Berkeley, you know, maybe what are some things that you've noticed as a, as a person who like preps people from that experience and then teaches college? What are some things that you focus on or maybe focused more on because you've had that experience? Well, one thing that I definitely focus on, and I, I do this with all of my students when they whether they're entering students at Berkeley or I'm just teaching someone who's getting ready to go to college or anything is just the fundamentals because so many people ignore them because they think they know what they're doing. They can play some wacky seventh chord with like a sharp five and a, you know, this and that and the other, but like, can they play triads across the string sets? Do they even know how to spell a triad? That's the big one that I do that I, I work on actually I, um, I encourage all of my students to say their scales, uh, their scales forwards and backwards because, and to be, to think about things alphabetically, you know, like if you have a major scale, being able to say, you know, F sharp major backwards and not stumble upon it or build an F sharp major triad or an F sharp diminished triad or something like that. These fundamental things that people think they know, but they might not know. And something I've actually just started doing um, recently because I was reminded of it is um, when I was in undergrad at William Patterson, I had this keyboard harmony class for non-keyboard players, right? And at the end of every class, the teacher would make us all take out a sheet of just a scrap of paper and a pen. And she'd put the metronome on, you know, just put it on like, and she'd go two sharps, three flats, five flats one sharp and we were supposed to write it down and hand it in. And then that's how we left every single class. And so that's what I've started doing with my students is I've started saying, look, 
if you have the fundamentals down, if you can spell any chord, any triad, if you know your scales backwards and forwards, if you can think logically about, you know, how everything comes together and you can build it all off of the basics, like the major scale, the triads, arpeggios, what's the difference, you know, that kind of thing. That foundation feeds everything else that comes after that. But I really feel like there's so many people that are in such a rush to get to like, get to like level five when like, and then they kind of look at level one and they're like, eh, you know, but yet having the, the mastery of that foundation is one of the most powerful, in my opinion, one of the most powerful things you can have. So a little bit ago when you were talking about um, how you said something really interesting. You said that having this experience of teaching at Berkeley and working with the students in this kind of thoughtful way influenced your, you as a player. And I'm wondering like, if you can put your finger on that, like now that you've kind of laid out, okay, here's what I think students should focus on. How did helping them focus on the fundamentals and in their playing change the way you focused on things in your playing or did it? Do you think? Well, it did. It did. Because I mean, I would say honestly, like something that, um, that I've spent my entire adult life sort of hiding is that I don't always trust myself for a very long time, especially in my twenties, I didn't trust myself. And there were all these ideas that I had in my head about what I should be practicing, what I should be learning, how I should be approaching it. And when I started teaching at Berkeley, it sort of confirmed all those things. I was hesitant to trust in myself. It actually sort of allowed me to grow in a way that I wasn't allowing myself to grow because I wanted my students to grow. And then I said, wait a minute. And then a student, because I learned so much from my students. I think all of us can say that here, that we learn, we learn so much from our students. And um, that in and of itself was a confirmation that all of these things that I, I wanted to trust um, about, you know, the music and studying and practicing and different techniques was, it, it sort of validated it, especially because I was seeing it as how it, as how I was approaching it with my students, you know? And it was really amazing too. I'm fast forwarding quite a quite a bit ahead to 2011 when I joined the faculty. And one of the first students I had was this great singer songwriter. Her name was Honor. And she was just this delightful young woman and couldn't read a note of music, couldn't spell a major scale. And I just said to her, I said, you know what? You write great music and you have great songs. Wouldn't it be cool to know what you're doing? And by the end of the semester, she was writing out charts for her band. And that right there just sort of like, you know, sealed the deal. That like, and that's what I've learned from Berkeley, just that, you know, all of these ideas that I've had in the past about teaching or playing or developing as a player, like they were definitely, they were definitely um, became into sharper focus. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind right now in this part? 
Yeah, I mean, there you bring up a lot of really great points. And well, you know, back to you're talking about that teacher that would, you know, put the metronome on, or you're talking about asking students, hey, can you spell these out or write them out? And because the reality of is this is what plays the guitar. I'm pointing to my brain if you're listening to my head. <laughs> if it's not clear there, it doesn't magically become clear in your hands. You know what I mean? And um, actually, I, there's a funny quote from Pat Martino. He says, the guitar to me is like a fork. Okay? <laughs> Meaning it's just an in, it's just a tool, right? It's just right. use a fork to help you, okay, eat your food or whatever. The guitar is just that. It's just a tool to get what is inside out. But if it's not clear here, if you can't name those things or spell them out, they're not magically going to appear in your hand. So I think that's really great, all your techniques in terms of getting students. And there is that thing where, you know, We've been talking in, in other coffee talks with folks about there's so much information. Like, you know, when we were kids, I mean, you didn't have YouTube or these ways to learn, right? How to play right. things. You had to get a teacher and get a book, even if you could read music, right? But so you can get to this level of playing, but that doesn't mean that you really understand what it is. So, in that, I guess, point of view, you're teaching your hands to do something. But man, when you put, if you have that knowledge from inside to connect with your hands, that's when it's going to, you know, take you to places you, you couldn't even imagine, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, something that, um, something that my teacher Ted Dunbar um, used to say time and time again at my lessons is that all of these techniques that we're learning, all of this foundational stuff is ear training. And being able to spell the scales and spell them out the way you're just talking about, like having that information up here is gonna translate to here and then translate to here. So it's really, um, yeah, cause it's not just one of those things like, ah, oh, you know, I'll just wing it and see what happens. And I just wanna say that when you said here, here and here, you pointed to your head your ears, and then your hands. And I think that's right. That's right on. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really, and I try and emphasize this, especially with students who are like, well, I'm self-taught and, you know, I can, I can hear anything. And I'm like, that's great. Take that ear and apply it to this then. And then I'll say to them, like, don't you want to know everything? Don't you want to figure it all out? And then know you are untouchable. No one can stop you, right? So I, I, even with the skeptical ones who are like, oh, I don't need this stuff, blah, 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 you know, I try to, you know, emphasize like Cheryl, what you said, like it's gotta be up here. And it is a fork. I love Pat Martino. <laughs> he's, he's just so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I wanna ask you um, to think about some of your musical projects and some things you might wanna share with us because you've done some really interesting different things. You're in a group of, of all women that toured. Um, you've done um, a, a composition project um, based on the Perkea vote. You've done um, work with your own quartet in recording. You've done 
a nonprofit that you ran that also um, booked other musicians. Um, and I just, I know that those are really different projects in some ways, like in the style kind of, in the voice of it, in the meaning of it. And also in just the practicality, like, you know, you've, I've heard you on the radio, I've seen you on tour and, uh, I know you've done a lot of stuff just in Queens and in New York city. And I'm wondering if you can like, kind of just talk about a little bit, maybe even one thing about a few of those different projects and talk about like, maybe if there's common threads for you and you're playing when you're preparing for different things or things that you've learned from having those experiences and maybe seeing yourself as a person that has a voice, but is also versatile as a player. Um, and you could kind of take that any way you want it. But I, I think there's a lot of listeners that are thinking like, I want to do different things and how do I do that? And what kind of crosses over and what might be different? Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with the Pierre Kea vote. Um, just a little back history on that. It's a collection of rabbinic wisdom from the third century, um, right around the time of the destruction of the second temple when um, the Jews were really scared that they were going to be eliminated and that their intellectual wisdom was going to be lost. So they basically like compiled a book. <laughs> and so it's also sometimes called the wisdom of the fathers. Sometimes it's called the wisdom of the Jewish sages. And it's a lot of really just practical advice. And one of, one of the verses, which, which gets said a lot is, um, if I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? But if I'm for myself alone, then what am I? And if not now, when? You know, so I just thought the verses were really cool. Um, and the other thing about it is that, you know, it can be really challenging, like, to, you know, it's really easy to pigeonhole oneself into a specific genre. You know, like, I can't tell you how many times like people have looked at my guitar and they're like, that's not a jazz guitar. It's too small. And I'm like, so what's a jazz guitar then? And I used to play a Klein. I used to play a Klein guitar and that looks like a kidney on a stick. And uh, people are like, you play jazz on that? You can really play jazz on that? What gauge strings do you have on that? Tens? What? Uh? Cause you couldn't really get good 11s. But anyway. So the Pirkei Vote was probably, it's probably one of the most freeing projects I've ever had because I've taken the verse, I've just like read through it and I've like picked out some verses, right? And I put it to music because nobody had. So, um, so one of the most recent, um, like the recent, actually it's right here. Ha, shameless self-promotion, all set up, I have a record. An actual record. It's really exciting to have a record. But like the first song on here is uh, Pray for the Welfare of the Government. Were it not for the fear of it, man would swallow his fellow alive. Yeah, so that was like a 70s, like wah wah kind of thing. And um, I know I'm kind of all, all over the place, but one of the things that I've loved about doing the Perkevote thing is taking the verses and like just writing whatever I feel like writing. And for some reason, just, it's one of the more freeing projects I have because like there's a tune on here that I totally ripped off the changes from a Cole Porter tune and then the tune after that is like a metal tune. 
with the vocalist like overdubbing her voice nine times and it sounds like absolute chaos, you know? Um, but this goes back to everything that I've said already about knowing the fundamentals and knowing the foundation of things. Because the one thing that I always try to strive for is I try to strive for a melody that can be remembered. But I also really love chaos. I like chaos in music, you know? But I don't think you can have chaos in music. You know, some of my favorite, some of my favorite avant-garde jazz players, you listen to them play free jazz, you hear the entire history of jazz come out of that horn. And that's significant. Like, it's not, you can't just like go out there and be like, oh, whatever, you know, you can't really, I don't think you can do that. And, and I think that has really informed all of my projects. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because the project you chose to start with has a, su a very deep subject and you've let that allow your artistic creativity and all of these different styles inform your writing for it. And it, and it, it maintains like the expression of the deep origin really of, of what you're doing. And, and not many people maybe would know unless you get into it, but you have a rock background and you have a background in these other styles that you love and you're bringing it. And then I've also heard other projects. Like I know that you were in a band that was maybe it, it had a different kind of creative idea. I know you did a Chili's commercial with them. I know you're in the show cash cab ah. you know, stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's really interesting to me because I think like, you know, like as a composer and as a writer, and I know you wrote a lot for that project, like, so you're writing for things where people are like, yes, we're going to use that in a commercial. And then you're also writing for things where it's like, wow, you can't get deeper than this text. What parts of you as a composer, do you think like, I mean, you already answered that you use the fundamentals in both cases, but it's really a different type of part of your musical personality, right? And it's possible to have parts of your musical life that are commercial and parts that are really art-based. But I think that can be the same thing, you know? You know, I think, I think it's funny that, that we, we decide what's in and what's out, really. I mean, I remember when my sister would come to visit my husband and me, when her son was two and a half, like they were living over in London. And my husband's a jazz journalist. He listens, he gets like 600 CDs a month or some craziness like that. And he would be listening to avant-garde jazz in the living room to like review the CD. And my little two and a half year old nephew was like bopping along and he's like all happy about it. Now he hates that stuff, he's 16, you know? And the only thing we can agree on is the Hamilton soundtrack. But when he was two and a half, he thought it was great, you know? So I guess my point is just that I feel like I took the same thing that I did with the lascivious biddies, the dirty old ladies, um, the same kind of arranging and composing I did for that band is similar to what I did for the Perkea Vote because it was one of those projects, we called it Next Generation Cabaret because like we did a Smiths tune, um, we did this really wacky version of You Don't Own Me where I used a looper pedal and like, it was super creepy. We used to play It's Only a Paper Moon as a waltz in a minor key, which is really fun, by the way. Um, but I feel like it's all connected. Even now too, with, um, you mentioned the all-female project I have, um, Lioness, which we actually did just get another grant 
from the Queen's Council on the Arts. So we're going to be doing a three concert series in Queens at Flushing Town Hall in the fall um, with three different bands. Lioness will play and then um, two other bands led by women will play. And so, I mean, it's all still just music. I mean, I definitely would say that the music that I, that I write I like it to be sort of based on something. Like a lot of times I'll write, like if it's not like the Pair Vote thing, like if I'm writing just tunes for my band or whatever, like a lot of times I'll come up with the title before I come up with the song. Cause I'll, I'll say like, you know, like I wrote this really frantic tune one time called Deadlines Looming. And it was one of those things where I had to write one more song for the record but I was also watching football and the Green Bay Packers were in like the fourth quarter and they were about to lose and like time was running out and I had to finish this tune. I was going on the road and going into the studio and I was like, I just got to finish this damn thing. So I did, <laughs> but it was one of those, you know, and the song kind of reflects that it's a little, it's a little frenetic, you know? Um, but yeah, I think I just look at it. I look at everything kind of the same way, fundamentals, melody, connection, Chaos. I think it, I, it's interesting that words inspire you and also, you know, your project based around the prayers. It, it made me think of um, actually Tosin um, and, you know, and that band was, and the compositions were based around uh, literature. And I remember talking to him about that, you know? So I think that's cool. Cause I, myself personally, I never really approached that way, but I think that's really cool way that that connects with you either, whether it's a work and I've definitely shared many, I actually, I was here jotting down some of the titles of things for you. Cause I always am getting book recommendations for you, but that that over, you know, that is a, a discipline that inspires your artistic output yeah I mean I've always been a really I've always been a voracious reader I mean pretty much any picture of me as a kid you'll see me holding a book like there's a picture of me you know in front of my dad my dad had a, a, a sports car when I was a kid um he had a Porsche like a real like low-end model Porsche that was supposed to be mine, but then the floor rotted out when I was like 15. So that was the end of that. But there's a picture of the two of us in front of the Porsche and I'm holding a book. And then there's like a picture of us at a wedding and I'm holding a book. So I've always really been into reading. And so I think, and writing, when I was a kid, I used to write these, um, in, in elementary school, I wrote all these children's books and like did the drawings and, and all that. So that writing has always been something I wanted to do. Um, and uh, I also am inspired by guys like Jim Hall, right? So Jim Hall has that song, Careful, which is the 16 bar blues. And he says he calls it careful because if you're not careful, it'll turn into a 12 bar blues. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a story behind the words that kind of sparks your imagination and your creativity and also maybe an imagery that comes with the words for you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of what I write is sort of inspired by experiences I've had or just topics and mm -hmm. things like that. I just want to mention too, that 
Cheryl mentioned Tosin, and that's Tosin Abasi from the band Animals as Leaders, who um, we got to hang with. Cheryl got to hang with uh, for everybody a couple semesters ago. I have to check him out more. I have to check out Animals as Leaders yeah. more. I think that's interesting. I mean, I think what is really cool about doing these hangs is that you find out that different players have things in common you might not expect. Like there's something that you and Tosin have in common that you're both composers who really are inspired by literature and write through the stories and images that come to you through literature. I think that's, it's neat. You find your kindred spirits, you know, I think it's very cool. That's so cool that he does that. I want to, now I want to like talk to him about it. Mm. I don't know me, but we read a lot of books. Well, you, he's great. He's, he loves to talk about that stuff. He's really, he's cool. obviously his music shows his imagination is so vibrant. And yeah, yeah. You, guys would, you guys would hit it off. Awesome. I'm going to reach out to him. Hey, Thank Ian, you. what's on your mind right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I really dig, you know, looking for other sort of inspiration. I mean, there's a great contrast, you know, in what you've been talking about, talking about like getting into the nitty gritty of really knowing your fundamentals and like really getting in touch with like putting your head deep into the texts of like music and learning that front to back, but to also have that thread to these other sort of avenues for creativity is really important because as a student at Berkeley, you do a lot of the former and not a lot of the latter because you're just, and, and that's true for anybody who's in music school, right? That you're just really putting yourself deep into really getting everything down. And um, I'm curious to know how, you know, what it was like for you at music school and, you know, how you sort of tied that in, what your experience has been with that. Well, my first two years of music school, I went to Rutgers because I wanted to study with the guitarist Ted Dunbar, who has a who had a very very specific approach to the guitar, and everyone who came through his studio studied that first semester. We all studied the same thing, which was he wrote a tune that was a contrafact on a jazz standard called Green Dolphin Street. The tune he wrote was called Lazy Lane. You were expected to learn the melody in every position on the fretboard. You were supposed to write it out up an octave to read it up an octave. If you could re read it up an octave, two octaves, you're supposed to write that up two octaves. This was before finale. I mean, finale existed, but like, Marjorie, <laughs> they didn't have a computer. So um, until like after college. So, um, so we had to do that. So we had to play Lazy Lane, everywhere in the neck, play the melody. Then there was a chord melody that went with it. Then there was a chord exercise that went with it using all available tensions, all the chords that were available, you know, like major seven, major six, major six, nine, major six, nine, sharp 11, major seven, sharp five, like everything. It was like a list. And then we did um, scales in three octaves, arpeggios in three octaves. He had a list of 13 scales and 10 arpeggios that we should do, everybody should do. There was a 251 book um, that had like pretty much every way you can play a 251, you know, scales. 
And that book's really fun because I've been using that book to um, I've been using that book along with the Berkeley curriculum because he does some stuff in there with harmonic major where he doesn't call it that, but it's in there. And then the other thing about Ted that was always really interesting is that minor pentatonic to Ted was one, two, flat, three, five, six. It was not the rock and roll scale. I don't know why I called it that, but like one, two, three, one flat, three, that, that just got absorbed into the blues scale. And then we did all of that in 12 keys. And he never wrote a single thing down. So you were expected to record your lessons and go into a practice room and transcribe everything. I didn't sleep much my freshman year. I think I slept four hours a night. It was like, you know, but it was also one of those programs back there. Then like Kenny Barron was teaching there, Larry Ridley, Ralph Bowen, Bill Fielder, this guy, um, also known as prof, who's like, he was Charles Stafford's teacher, I think Wynton Marsalis, like all these really like heavy trumpet players studied with him. And, and, um, but because of the faculty that were there, like Eddie Harris would just like pop in and see what was going on and say hi to Ted or, you know, Buddy Montgomery would be hanging out with Kenny or, you know, like it was just like such a weird place, you know, and it was such a small program. So like, the teachers were just so intense and they were so connected because they were, you know, because they they were at that time, you know, very well. I and mean, Kenny Barron was so well established at that point. And here he is teaching us, you know, jazz harmony and stuff. And so it, there was this reverence that like was just always there in the in the college. So like you did your work, like you did not show up for a lesson with Ted unprepared. Oh, and he never gave A's. No one ever got an A. That was the other part, too. Um, my friend Noah Behrman went to grad school at Rutgers as well as undergrad. He had um, a graduate class with Ted. He said he's never worked harder in his entire life, and he's still got to be. I think it's wild that he was your... Um early teacher in college and you know he had such an impact on you the way you speak about him you know it was a really long time ago and and not for a very long time and he made such an indelible impact on you that's really great to see and and it must influence the way that you think about the impact you may have on students if you have carried with you such an influence from your first year teacher that's oh, yeah. I mean, Ted used to talk a lot in my lessons. Like one of the things that I kept with I've kept with me this whole time that I always tell my students is that when you're feeling overwhelmed and you feel like you've got a thousand things to do, it gets smaller with understanding. Understanding is the key to everything. Think about why you're doing it. Think about what you're doing. Take everything like sit down. Look at, and I tell students this when they're like, we're going to probably start having this conversation in the next week or two at Berkeley. Um, how are you doing? Oh my God, my closet, you know? And I'm going to have to like, you know, say to the kids like, okay, sit down. What do you have to do? What classes do you have? Okay. So like you have maybe your ear training class. Okay. So you have to do this project for that. Okay. So now you have your MTech class. So what, what's required for that? Okay. How about your private lesson? What are you working on in that? And then you can break that down into components and you break everything down and you 
write it down and you keep it handy. Because the one thing I also tell students now is it's the 21st century. We are so overwhelmed. All of us are so overwhelmed. We all have things coming at us from like every angle, including the ones we didn't even think existed and we're completely overwhelmed. But if you write it down, you break it down, it gets easier, you know? And I think Abby mentioned like the whole bullet journal thing, right? That I showed her like just writing things down day by day. And like you rewrite it if you don't do it that day, you have to rewrite it the next day. But I tell all these, these students that like, it's not, it's not a natural thing, you know, to be, first of all, it's not a natural thing. Like they're, they're in one of the most intense music programs in the world. And you have to write stuff down. You have to break things down into bits. Otherwise you're gonna lose your mind, you know? Ian, this almost sounds like the answer to the question you always ask. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I gotta say, I love the, uh, what you said, it, everything gets smaller with understanding and to like tie it back to when you talked about the fundamentals and like playing the triads, like across all the string pairs, like I, you know, you look at the guitar neck, you know, the fretboard, and it just seems like such a jungle if you don't understand it. And it's so big and expansive, but when you really get it down, it just, it makes that thing seem a lot smaller. Um, but uh, the question that sort of you seem to already be um, sort of preempting, which is something we ask everybody, which is what's something that students should be asking about or should be thinking about that they might not think to ask or that might not be on their radar yet? Am I taking care of myself? And that comes on multiple levels. I'm not just talking about like sleep, water, food, exercise. Those are like, you know, it's something I like to call the non-negotiables. What are the non-negotiables? And that gets a little bit hazier, right? So like, if you're a performance major, the non-negotiable for you is you have to practice. And you, that's a non-negotiable, right? And you have to organize your time to make sure that you get in everything that you have to get in. So like when I was a freshman in college, I had my classes and I had it mapped out when I could practice. So I'd practice an hour, then I'd go to class, then I'd go to another class, then I'd practice another hour, then I'd go to another class, then I'd eat lunch. You know, it was, it was, it was all, because the whole thing is you have the time but you have to organize it. But that also comes to, am I taking care of myself? Am I taking care of what I need to do to get myself to where I wanna be? And that's not an easy question to answer all the time, you know? Especially too, cause you know, you're in college, you're away from home for the first time, you're meeting people. And especially now, because everybody's been inside for so long, it's like, let's go out, ah! you know? So, there was, there was this, um, this pianist I went to college with who has gone on to do really, really great things. Um, and, uh, lives in Jerusalem, has a master's, uh, has a doctorate in composition. 
and was always just so focused and um this was at William Patterson and we'd be like hey we're gonna we're gonna go listen to some <laughs> we're so silly jazz kids we're gonna go check out some sides and and have some beer you want to come and she'd be like nah I'm gonna practice and anytime we ever asked her if she wanted to do something she'd be like nah I'm gonna practice and she's had the career that she set out to have you know like she's has her trio she's like doing her thing she's thriving and like she took care of herself is what i'm saying it's like that's what she felt needed to happen you know and um and i think that that can be something that really that that whole like fomo thing makes me crazy fear of missing out you know um but that's that's always something, and especially too, if you're like a if you're like a person that if you're a person that's a pleaser, like you you don't like saying no, you always want to say yes. You don't have any boundaries, right? Or you want to have boundaries. But you don't feel like you're entitled to have boundaries, you know. And then you just have to ask yourself, is this good for me? Is this what I set out to do? Because the other thing too, is that you have to just, you have to just keep on going. That was another thing Ted used to always say, just keep on going straight ahead, you know, stay on, stay on your path because your path can be very easily swayed, you know, and, and if there is a change that's going to be made, like maybe you think you're going to be a performer, but you realize that you want to be a production, you want to be on the other side of it, that's fine. But being honest with yourself and asking yourself if you're taking care of yourself. I think that's so important. And I think that's something that um, I'm going to think about is what are the ways of taking care of yourself? And how do they extend to the way you approach your art and your craft and the work in front of you and what's the non-negotiable for you. It's really great. It puts the, the responsibility and the power back on the individual because it makes it all about, you know, taking care of yourself as doing the things you need to do to be who you want to be. And I think that's a, that's a pretty cool thing to come to in a cup of coffee. That's what I have to say. So this is really, my second cup. So <laughs> well, maybe that's why. My maybe that's cup, why. Right? Yeah, me too. You know. Um, so Cheryl, what about you? What's on your mind as we kind of come to the end of cup number two here today? Yeah. Well, thank you, Amanda. I mean, that was really puts so brilliantly your answer to that question because it is about we empowering right students and empowering yourself that we do have more power than we give ourselves credit for so i think that's why you're such a popular and successful teacher because students get that from you you know and sometimes it's just that meeting that person that sets you straight on that right i love that what you said about that and also think about writing things down because you know maybe this is a generational thing I always have a pen. Um, I, I wrote down many notes of books that you mentioned in quotes that here from this talk. So 
here, here, here. I love that. I'm stolen. Take note. It's stolen. And uh, love it. understanding makes things smaller. Stolen. All right. So, um, but those are great. But, you know, there is a thing about the writing things down. You know, if you want to memorize a tune, uh, you know, go away from the guitar and write out the changes. And there's a thing about that, the physicality, your eyes, and using your senses in that way, which obviously Ted Dunbar made you do. And you you know, you're talking about your other teacher, you know, just write stuff down. And you've done that with your journal. I think that's so important in terms of, of be, having that process of being able to break things down so you understand them. I think it's a big process and a lot of students think I have it on my phone or I do this or that and I'm like you know this part of it you might say it's old school but there is a it's very powerful so thanks for um, emphasizing that in your talk here and and I know with your students I'm sure they I know they get a lot out of that oh, I'm glad ah sorry I thought I turned my phone off <laughs> that's a very very relaxing ringtone i think that that's also taking care of yourself <laughs> that. Um, ian what about you what, what would what's on your mind as we're wrapping it up i love the idea that you know practicing and learning how to spell your triads like that is self-care right because if you don't do it a lot of other stuff is going to be a lot harder for you right if you don't make time to practice if you don't um, do whatever work toward whatever project you're doing. You might drive yourself uh, crazy or to, toward, you know, other habits or things, procrastination. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, that's, I really dig that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, well, one other thing that I make students do when they're feeling untethered, and this this opens up a whole can of worms. I still do it myself when I'm feeling untethered. I do a timesheet. So I take a piece of paper and I write down everything I do that day in five minute increments. And I do that for a week. And at the end of the week, I, I, I add everything up and I look at it. And I make all my students do that in the second, because I teach the career development seminar for liberal, liberal arts, six semester students. I make all of them do that. And I make them do it with their money too. Like, what did you spend this week? You know, how many hours did you spend on Instagram this week? Was it personal? Was it business? You know, like I'm guilty. I look at too many cat photos on Instagram. I'm not gonna lie, you know? But when I write it down, I have to actually really own up to it, right? So that's another thing that it's just all about like keeping track of things and just being honest with it and being honest with yourself. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in our future, there may be some, uh, continuing, continuing clinics or panels or posts about triads as self-care and related, related items. So thank you so much for giving us all something to really think about this week. Um, it's great having you on Coffee Talk, Professor great. Monaco. Great seeing you guys. <laughs> well, coffee cheers, Cheryl Bailey. Coffee cheers. Coffee cheers, Ian Steed, and coffee cheers to Professor Monaco. And we'll be with you next time on Coffee Talk.